0: Hello and welcome to another episode of multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. I am happy to be with you today to discuss the topic low risk and high returns. I know some of you are going to listen to that and say, wait a minute, don't you mean uh, low risk and reasonable returns or low risk and modest returns or... High risk, high returns. Uh, How does low risk equal high returns? That's what we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, As with all the commentary that we have on these uh, sessions, 90% of this is going to be applicable to those of you that are listening who are doing these investments on your own. Uh, You have a single family rental or a duplex or something like that. The uh, balance of that, the little 10, maybe 20%, that will be more focused on, uh, on the work we do, on the larger scale work, uh, it should still be of some value and interest. For those of you that are looking to make investments in multifamily real estate, uh, we certainly invite you to come by marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com, or shoot me an email, pat at uh, And we'd be happy to talk to you about doing that. What we're going to talk about today are the ways we at Mara Polling, uh, five steps that we employ, uh, many more, but we're going to talk about just five of them, that we employ that lower risk in terms of the investments that we make, and in doing so, how those ultimately, in fact, do drive higher returns, which sounds a little counterintuitive, but uh, over the next 20-25 minutes. We'll uh, we'll hopefully be able to share enough of that to uh, give you a sense of how that works. So let's let's dive right in. Uh, five tips, ideas, topics, strategies, uh, however you want to call them, that we use to lower re- uh, risk in the multifamily real estate investing space. These aren't necessarily in any sequence, although this is how I wrote them down when I was uh, coming up with the uh, thoughts for today's session. So uh, the first of these is going to be a conservative underwrite. If you've been uh, listening for a while uh, to uh, our sessions, and by the way, you can go back and listen to uh, earlier sessions in season three, as well as uh, go back to seasons one and two, uh, you will have heard us at some point in time talk about conservative underwriting. What we mean by that is this, is when we model out the performance of an asset uh, during the acquisition Phase of a particular uh, project. We will make a range of assumptions about a number of variables, and these variables include items like uh, rent growth, uh, expense growth, uh, occupancy, uh, bad debt, um, physical vacancy, um, capital investment, uh, capital reserve requirements, a whole host of different factors, and obviously the purchase price um, as well. Uh, And we're going to talk about that more actually in a moment. Uh, So when we make those assumptions, uh, it's one possibility is you could make those assumptions based on the market data you have, which is how we do it. And you could aim for the center of the target, right? You could aim for, uh, right for what the market says it's going to be. And so I'll use an example. Uh, The asset that we're looking to acquire has historically had an 8% vacancy rate, 92% occupancy. Uh, We can look at the data and see that while there's been some movement in that, in general, it's pretty much been 8%. So we could forecast based on that and maybe the data around the submarket says you know generally speaking the submarket supports that as well so 8% looks like a pretty good number so we could underwrite 8% and in underwriting an 8% vacancy we'd have maybe a 50% chance that 8%s too high a number right in other words it's actually going to be better it's going to be 7% or 6% or 5% and a 50% chance that we're going to be too low that um Uh, You know, that we're going to be, that it's going to be 9%, 10%, 11%. Low and high, maybe get a little backwards there on on these, but you get the idea, right? We could be off one way or the other. And if you aim right for 8%, you've probably got a 50 50 chance of being on one side or the other well, we like playing 80-20. We're not not big fans of 50-50. And and this is what we would encourage you to do if you're looking uh, for a low-risk investment on your own or if you're looking to make an investment with a firm like Mara Poling uh, that you ask questions about how those folks do their underwriting. Our underwriting is done with this 80-20 methodology. So if we've had a historic uh, vacancy number around 8%, we're going to underwrite 9%, 10%. In some instances, we might even underwrite 11. If we under, start underwriting 11, 12, 13%, that's probably an asset that's not going to fit our model. Uh, that's that's a little too much uh, vacancy for us. Doesn't mean it's a bad investment. Just means it has higher risk, and and we're in the low risk camp. So a conservative underwrite is going to have these 80-20 methodologies all the way through it, meaning that instead of having a 50% chance of doing better and a 50% chance of doing worse, we want to have only a 20% chance of doing worse and an 80% chance of doing better. And I'm not a statistician, so I, I don't, that, that this is a conceptual conversation. Uh, I don't get out and actually do uh, all the statistical math to tell if it's 80, 20, uh, You know, maybe it's 70, 30, maybe it's 90, 10. The idea is we're moving that center point, that target, so that we're aiming on the conservative side of the curve. Uh, So a conservative underwrite is absolutely a way to lower risk, move risk off of the table. One of the things that comes out of that underwrite, I mentioned purchase price, is what are you going to pay for the asset? All those variables I talked about have an impact on the performance of the asset. they're levers in our mind. Some of those levers are really strong and powerful, like purchase price. Some of them, not so much. Um, interest rates, for example. Interest rates certainly have an impact. They don't have as much of an impact as you actually think. You, know, you go through and look at all the other variables you can move around. There's a lot of other uh, variables that uh, you need to manage every bit as well as interest rates doesn't mean we like paying high interest rates. It just means we don't, we don't lose our minds when suddenly we might need to pay five basis points higher. That's not going to move the kneel greatly in a conservative model. So um, purchase price, though, is an important number, big lever. And uh, a conservative underwrite like we use will produce a not to exceed number. And that number is exactly what I just said it was. It is a not-to-exceed number. And that's one of the uh, most important ways you can lower risk as an investment is going in knowing what the number is that your model stops working at. So I'm not necessarily talking about that old adage of, gee, you make money when you buy an asset. Um, You can, and we have done that numerous times where we've been able to purchase assets Uh, at a significant discount to what the market uh, for that asset is. And I think we've talked about that before. If not, we'll we'll have a session on that uh, coming up maybe. Um, But what I'm discussing with this not to exceed number is not necessarily buying an asset at a discount and getting a bargain. I'm talking about not buying an asset at a price that just isn't going to work. Because there's lots of things you can do to purchase an asset correctly and then mismanage it so it underperforms. I'm not aware of any methodology where you can buy an asset incorrectly and then manage it well enough to get back to the level of performance you need. So you you really have to buy it the right way. Um, We look at a lot of deals. Uh, If you were listening uh, a week or two ago, uh, Bill Mara was on with us and uh, Bill was walking through our acquisition process where deals come from, and uh, we look at a lot of deals. Uh, Bill will underwrite 150 deals in a year or something like that, and there's a very small number that make it through the process and come out the other end for us to to work on. Uh, But that's what you have to do. So having a not-to-exceed number and then sticking to that not-to-exceed number. If the conversation, negotiation, bidding, whatever it is, goes a dollar above it, then you stop. And we have certainly had folks come back to us and say, I can't believe you're going to walk away from this deal over $20,000. I said, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I can't believe you're not going to work with me over a a mere $20,000, but I'm not going above this number. Um, And we sleep well at night doing that because there's no reason to take on deals that just aren't going to fit the model. So uh, using a not to exceed. Location, location, location. It's a silly, it's a silly topic. Uh, you hear it a lot in the residential space, right? When you buy a home, location, location, location. Um, it It is absolutely true in the multifamily space. And by that, by location, 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 uh, what I'm talking about is the sub-market that the asset is located in, the characteristics of that market in terms of its current and future growth. And by growth, I mean Population growth, household growth, income growth, job growth, all of those factors that not only improve the performance of an asset, but by virtue of the fact that you're in a market that is growing, it provides additional safety and security, i.e. lowering the risk, so that when we move throughout the entirety of the economic cycle, which means when we go through a recession, those markets are going to fare better than a market that's not experiencing significant growth or that's not experiencing any growth, that's simply a mature market. So when you look at our assets, generally speaking, our assets are going to be um, either on the uh, edge or near the edge of a uh, a larger market uh, so that we're experiencing growth, or they may be on the interior of a market, but in a very specific area that, uh, that is experiencing growth. And you'll see that in uh, the assets we have in San Antonio and Dallas uh, and Houston and all along the, uh, the Texas Triangle. We've got lots of great examples. And again, happy to share those with you. Um, again, stop by the website, uh, the Learning Center in particular at morapoling.com. It's a lot of good material there that uh, touches on these items, webinars. You can see some of the stuff that we're uh, talking about here. And you can always shoot me an email, pat at So location's really important. That's going to, again, reduce the risk. Uh, asset class, and, I, and by that I don't mean multifamily. Yes, multifamily is an asset class within commercial real estate. I'm talking about class B multifamily. We like to call class B multifamily, the Goldilocks class. And it's Goldilocks in that it is uh, not too hot and not too cold in a variety of ways. It is uh, insulated, if you will, from the volatility through the economic cycle by virtue of having A tenants that will can move down and C tenants that can move um, up. It is uh, the largest of the classes it uh, was built during uh, predominantly during the time frames that we uh, like to target. The uh, the 80s is uh, was a very large time for Class B construction. There is almost no ability to build new Class B product uh, competitively. Therefore, new development in every market that we're involved in is in the Class A space. So you've got a lot of demand for a good quality product, again, that are in good locations and so on that we just talked about, and almost no ability to respond with supply. The only reason I say almost no ability is there is some development in class B. It tends to be heavily subsidized by uh, state and local governments and has a bunch of strings attached to it, which prohibited them from really functioning in the market. So you're not really adding a market-based product when you do that. So conservative underwriting, having a not-to-exceed price, focusing on the right location, 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 uh, class B assets, and then the right mix of value-add. Value-add is a term that gets used a great deal in the multifamily space, appropriately so, but there's no definition. Uh, You can't go to Webster's or the you know the Uniform Commercial Code or someplace else, and find a legal definition of value add. There just there just isn't one. Um, so you will uh, see uh, opportunities out there, investments that'll be described as value add, where there's little investment being made in the asset and rents are only moving modestly, all the way to some where you're you're almost rebuilding the entire asset and uh, and you're gonna move rents dramatically. Um, and if those folks wanna call themselves value add, that's not uh, our issue. How we describe our value add target, and this is what we're looking for, is again, a modest capital investment. So not no money, but we're not looking to put $20,000 a door in. For us, it would typically be five to maybe $8,000 a unit. And we want to move rents about 15 to 20%. Not a big fan of trying to go more than 20%. And again, that might seem odd. Why wouldn't you want to go higher? Wouldn't that be a better return? And yes, you could get a better return going higher. You begin to introduce some additional risk. The higher the rent increase, the larger you're going to move that number, the greater the repositioning or... Overhaul of the asset you're now doing, and I don't mean the physical work. I mean the marketing positioning work. So, if you've got an asset with average rents at say $800, and you're going to move those rents to um, uh, to uh, $900, well, you know that's not a bad number. If you're going to move them to $950, that's not bad. If you want to move them to $1,100. You're going to need to do something really significant in terms of how you position that asset in the marketplace, and you can, you certainly can do that. That's very achievable in a lot of conditions. Not mm-hmm. in all, but in many conditions it is. And you're going to it's going to have more risk associated with it because you're going to be doing something that has a more dramatic um, impact. So, uh, having that sweet spot again not too hot, not too cold. 15, maybe 20% rent movement, that's what checks the box for us. All right, so I've given you five tips, ideas, strategies that we employ at Mara Polling to lower risk so that we can all sleep well at night, feeling um, confident that we have a secure, stable asset. But how does that... Equal high returns, how does that turn into not just our targeted returns, um, uh, you know, tax advantage, cash flow, and equity growth, which typically for us is around 8% cash and about an 18% total return, IRR maybe around 15 something like that. Those are, that's basically our what our standard model comes out as. So why am I saying that if you employ these low risk strategies you can actually overachieve those particular targets Well I'm saying it because we we experience it with some degree of regularity and uh, the reason why um is is the second half of the conversation today that I want to that I want to touch on So the um one of the reasons we like investing in commercial real estate um Single-family, duplexes, fourplexes, the residential, multifamily space—that's fantastic. Um, great place to invest. Values there are a function of comps, what other what other people are kind of getting for the same asset. On the commercial side, so 20-plex, 40-plex, 100 units, 300 units—the space that we play in. Uh, assets are valued there based on the amount of net operating income you generate. So you generate more income, the asset's worth more. And on cap rates, basically what people are willing to pay to buy a dollar of net operating income, right? If somebody's willing to pay twenty dollars, that's a five cap. If somebody's willing to pay twelve dollars and fifty cents, it's an eight cap. So on and so on and so on. Um, so. Uh, so one of the ways that we see high returns is when you purchase an asset using the strategies we just described and you manage it using the strategies that we just described, what you experience is a solid performing asset that will be more desirable in the marketplace than other assets that are out there, right? So if someone has done a swing for the fences deal, um, uh, I saw one the other day uh, came across my desk. Uh, a deal was teed up. It was going to be, I think, a, a, something like a, um, a 30-month hold, so two and a half years. Uh, they were going to get in, do a bunch of work, and get out, and they were forecasting that uh, that cap rates were actually going to move um, in a positive manner for them. In other words, they were going to go down during that time frame, which I think is a bit of a dubious assumption, not a conservative underwriting. Um mm-hmm. But they were also, they were doing everything in that time frame. They were going to get everything done. So who were they going to sell that to? Um, Who's going to be really interested in in buying that asset um, if you've already done all that that work to it? Um, So using the strategy we're describing where you're doing these modest value adds, you're buying a a good, solid performing asset in a good, solid market, you're going to have more people that are going to be interested in buying that on the back end. And while we would underwrite a higher cap rate, meaning a lower-priced environment when it's time to exit, Um, often that's not the experience we've had. Um, uh, i give you an example. uh, An asset in um, the DFW Metroplex, uh, purchased a few years back, roughly 300 units. Uh, The asset was purchased for a little north of $14 million, put about a million dollars or so uh, into it, maybe just a little north of that, and... Uh, somebody comes and knocking on the door just a couple years later and says, I really like the asset. We'd like to purchase it. And the asset sells for $23 million. So not our plan, right? Not what the underwrite said. Uh, Absolutely what happened because the methodology we used to buy the asset and to manage the asset made the asset more valuable in the eyes of the marketplace. And that's ultimately what a cap rate is about. How many people are looking for good quality deals versus how many good quality deals are out there? The more people looking or the fewer deals that are available that meet those standards, the lower the cap rate and the higher the price that you're going to get. And that's exactly what happened in that particular uh, instance. I'll give you another example of uh, how you experience higher returns. Um, so. Uh, using methodology like the uh, Goldilocks uh, asset class, class B, where there's some insulation from class A and from class C assets, you're going to have a more steady performance. And that more steady performance over time, combined with the other conservative elements of the underwrite, 8% cash can be the target, and you will often see cash above that. Uh, Got an asset right now. The asset is moving into its third year, and cash is already uh, north of 10%, uh, headed towards 12 uh, right now. Uh, It is absolutely going to overperform the 8% number, not because we moved rents more aggressively, not because um, the uh, asset itself was purchased any differently, but simply because when you aim for 80-20 Yes, you're reducing the downside to 20%. You're also increasing the upside opportunity to 80%. So there's a much higher likelihood that things are going to go better. And that's exactly what's happening at that particular asset. We're still aimed for our target, right? For our underwrite. We're still in a position where, um, you know, we want to make sure we perform to that level. That doesn't mean that we're going to... um, not take advantage of opportunities to perform better. So as I said, for example, you underwrite vacancy at 10%. Historically, it's been at eight. We might be performing at eight, which means you're going to have a 2% improvement. That's going to flow through to NOI. It's going to throw off more cash. It's going to increase the value of the asset. You might actually be at 7% or even 6%. And that, in the example I'm uh, mentioning right now, is exactly what's happening uh, at that particular asset. So when you stand back and look at all of these items, the reason to employ a low-risk strategy is not to get higher returns. That's not what I want to communicate. We employ a low-risk strategy at Mara Poling because we want to reduce risk to achieve the first two elements of our five-step total return. Hence, the Mara Poling Total Return Fund, uh, and that is security and stability. And that's that's what we do by lowering risk. And when we lower risk, we increase the likelihood that we will in fact achieve the tax advantaged cash flow and equity growth that we target. Again, that 8% cash, 18% total return and and, uh, 15% IRR. But because we've done it in this 80-20 methodology, there's a decent chance that we're in fact going to overperform those and approximately 50% of the assets we have invested in uh, over time, in fact, have overperformed those those targets. Um, And we're happy to share those with you. If you're interested, shoot me an email. Be happy to talk to you some more about those and uh, give you some of the historical performance data so you can see how that has worked. As I said, for those of you that are looking to make an investment, uh, a passive investment in multifamily real estate, Uh, give me a call, shoot me an email, go to the website, download some of our material. Uh, I'd love to share with you what we're doing. We might be a good fit for you if we're not. Uh, I'd like you to at least look at what we're doing and understand how we do it so that can help you in terms of asking questions of others that you may be considering working with. And for those of you, pardon me. And for those of you that are doing this work on your own, Uh, you can absolutely do the exact same things that we're talking about, right? You can use a conservative underwrite, be focused on the location of the asset that you're purchasing, uh, try and buy in that middle of the market, that class B kind of space, Uh, have a not to exceed number. That's one of the biggest ones. (laughs) Have a not to exceed number so that you buy, uh, not so much that you buy it again, that you buy a deal on on the cheap, but that you don't overpay. Uh, and end up with an asset that's just never going to work the way you need it to. and uh, and be modest in terms of what you're planning on from a value add standpoint uh, so that you don't introduce too much um, too much risk. And if you do all of those things, as we do all those things, you will have a higher likelihood of seeing higher returns. And that's how low risk equals high returns. Please uh, take a visit at the uh, Learning Center at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com, and uh, subscribe if you aren't already subscribed. We do have sessions every week. Go back and listen to some of our past ones. If you have a topic you'd be interested in hearing us discuss or a guest you'd like us to have on or a type of guest, you know, hey, I'd like to have an estate attorney on there. I'd like to understand what they think about how we should hold title, which, by the way, is a great topic and one that we will actually be doing in the next couple of months. Uh, Then shoot us an email and let us know about that. Otherwise, have uh, have a great day. And we look forward to seeing you again next time on Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling.